Hello, and welcome to the Her Head in Films podcast. I'm Caitlin. I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my personal thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch, and they tend to be art house and world cinema. That tends to be what I gravitate towards. On today's episode, this is a very special episode. This is the 50th episode of the podcast, so I consider this a huge milestone. And so I wanted to do something special for this episode, and so I'm doing um, some listener questions. So I'm answering some questions from those of you who are listeners, and um, I hope that you like the podcast. This is going to be a little bit looser, a little bit more fun, and I don't want to be really serious. I just want to celebrate. This is kind of like a little party, right, um, for the podcast. Um, Can't believe I've done 50 episodes. If you're new to the podcast and you don't know who I am, as I said, my name's Caitlin. I consider myself a writer. I would describe myself as a dreamer. Really, I think my biggest passion in life is knowledge. I love learning about other people. I love literature. I love art. I love culture. I love poetry. And in the last few years, I've really developed this big passion for cinema. Um, came across Art House, got really serious about Art House Cinema around 2001 in my early 20s, and it's just been a big passion of mine ever since, and I created this podcast as an outlet for me to talk about the various films that I watch. I live in a rural area. I don't really have access to um, Art House theaters or anything like that, Um, don't have people around me who are similarly, you know, passionate about cinema. So this is my main outlet. I'm just talking to you about the movies that I watch. Um, If you're new to the podcast and you don't know what the title refers to, just from an email that I sent a friend a few years ago, I was watching a lot of films at that time and I wrote, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films and it's stuck. And I thought it was a perfect title because it really captures how I engage with cinema, how it's part of my life, part of my mind, something I'm thinking about. Um, And I just thought it was perfect to describe that. This podcast does have a Patreon where you can help to financially support the podcast on a monthly basis and help support the work that I do. Um... Through Patreon, you can get access to bonus episodes. Um, I have lots of rewards and extras, and you can find out more information at patreon.com slash herheadandfilms. Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. At one level, you can get a shout-out in each episode. So I just want to give my shout-outs to Carolyn, Feminist Overlord, Michelle, Jesse, Polina, Lindsay, and Olivia. Thanks so much for supporting the podcast. It means a lot to me, and it helps me uh, bring you these episodes every week. So the what you're doing is, is really essential. So today's episode is the 50th episode. It's just crazy to me. Um, this is not a big podcast. You know, this is... This is not serial or something like that. You know, I don't get thousands and thousands of listens or anything like that. It's still a a niche sort of podcast, but there's a few of you out there, um, and I appreciate you listening, and it's a nice feeling to think that the podcast is meaningful to people. I mean, you know, I try to put out a podcast every week. Sometimes I skip, and sometimes I need a break, and... I just have a lot going on in my life and but it's really interesting to think about how you are part of people's lives in a way and when I was younger I used to love listening to the radio I don't listen to the radio as much as I do as I used to when I was a kid I had like a boom box you know those of you who are children of the 80s 90s even the early 2000s I was born in 1989 I had my little boom box you know played my CDs and then at night I would put it on NPR usually, and I would listen to the radio, and um, I just loved hearing people's voices on the radio. I, I just, 
I felt like there was an intimacy, intimacy to it. And I liked that, unlike television, you know, where you have to be watching the screen, with radio, you can do other things. You can lay in bed. You can, you know, do chores or whatever. And it always interests me to think, like, I wonder what people are doing when they listen to these episodes, you know? Are they washing the dishes? Are they cooking? Are they on their commute? Are they just laying in bed at night? You know, where are they in the world listening to my voice? And sometimes I'll look at the stats and I'll see that, you know, people from different countries do listen to the podcast. Um, and it's really amazing to think how across space, across distances, that um, we are connected in some way. And we are connected um, through our love of film and, and our love of cinema and from day one, what I wanted this podcast to be about was the emotional, the personal, and this is an apologetically raw personal podcast. That's probably why it's so niche. <laughs> um, I want to talk about films that move me, that speak to me, and resonate with me. That's what I wanted to do from day one. And that's what I have done. And I haven't compromised on it. And, um, but more than anything, I've just wanted to give voice to this very intimate, ineffable experience of encountering art, of connecting with art. I've wanted to make that intimate, personal experience public. I've wanted to try to explain it, to put it into words, to talk about it. Because my whole life, this is what has mattered to me is art. I'm not very good at life. I'm not very good at reality. I'm not very good at being out in the world. What I crave, what I live for, what helps me survive is art, is the experience of reading a book, of listening to a song, of watching a film. That is, that is me. That is my life. Like, that is when I feel most alive. That is when, where I belong. I've never felt like I belonged anywhere. I've never been the kind of person with a lot of friends or a big support system. So much of my life is within myself. It's within my mind, within my head. You know, I have this very um, intense inner life that other people can't see. It doesn't show up on the outside. It doesn't show up on my body or my face. And, um, all I've ever really had is that inner life and that inner, um, that inner need for art. And, um, and so I've always struggled with how to put that into words, how to communicate that. I mean, that is my biggest struggle in life, I would say, is to connect with people and is to communicate with people. And it just hasn't happened. It hasn't happened in my real life. And so I think maybe I've been craving it through this podcast that I want to connect to people. I want to communicate with people. Um... That's all I've ever wanted, you know, and I want to be valued, right? I mean, we all want to be valued. I want to be seen as important in some way. And um, through the podcast, I think that I do feel that, you know, I do feel that those of you who are dedicated listeners and maybe you're a new listener right now and you've never listened to an episode before, but this is me, you know, in every episode I just try to give you myself. You know, I'm just sitting in my room talking. I'm just trying to give what I have to you and to talk about a film and to talk in a way like we're friends, you know. That was another thing I wanted to do with the podcast is I wanted to take film out of academia, out of the college classroom, you know, out of the film studies course because I never took any. I'm self-taught um, when it comes to cinema and I just wanted to talk as a regular person um, who just feels things deeply sometimes and who f feels films in a way. I have a lot of film feelings as I put it and um, I've just always wanted 
to connect and communicate. And so that's what I'm trying to do through this podcast. And the fact that it's lasted 50 episodes, that's pretty amazing, you know. And um, I'm proud of that. You know, I've done that. It feels like an accomplishment. Like, wow, I've done 50 episodes and um, I've had to let go of perfection. I know not every episode is perfect. Some have more research and, and stuff than others. Um, sometimes I don't find the words the way I want to because I don't script the episodes out. I might have an outline at times. Usually, if I did a lot of research, then I definitely have an outline. But usually I'm just flying off the seat of my pants, as they say, and I'm just kind of making it up as I go along because I think that in talking out loud, in, in doing these episodes, it's interesting to just see where your where my thoughts take me, you know. And sometimes I'm just exploring a film spontaneously and I just want to see where my thoughts take me. And I think that's really interesting as well. So I've talked enough about um, all of this, but this is a celebratory episode. This is um, an episode of gratitude as well, that I'm very grateful to those of you who listen, those of you who support the podcast in myriad ways, whether it's financial or whether it's um, just listening, you know, all all of that matters. And um, I'm just really, really grateful. Yeah. I mean, I, I celebrated the one year anniversary of the podcast about a month ago. Um, And that was a really big deal. And now celebrating the 50th episode. It's it's a great feeling. It really is. So thanks to all who listen. So I wanted to really do something special for this episode. It wouldn't seem right to just kind of go on with business as usual. Um, So I thought I'd take some listener questions. And so I have compiled some. And I'm going to answer them. And um... Maybe it'll give you more of a sense of who I am, or it'll just be fun to listen to. It'll just be something interesting for you and to get like a different view of me. And none of these are personal. They're all related um, to cinema. They're all cinema-related questions. Some are serious. Some are not so serious. So I'm just going to start. And so I'm not going to say who asked the questions, just these are just general questions that people asked me so question number one what is the most overrated film in your opinion um i have a lot of them um i don't totally love all the films that every that other cinephiles go gaga over i have a very idiosyncratic taste that's why I would never call myself an authority like don't listen to me I'm not Roger Ebert I'm not Richard Brody you know I'm I'm not any of that I'm not any kind of authority on film I'm very idiosyncratic I'll love a film that you hate and I'll hate a film that you love um I just have my own kind of thing that I go with I would say a few. I have a few films that I'm not really impressed by and that I don't really care for. And I usually try not to be too negative on the podcast. I tend to want to talk about films and filmmakers that I really love, that I'm really passionate about. Because I think in this world and on social media and things like that, there can get a lot of negativity. And you... It can be hard for me to go on social media at times because there are some people or some accounts or whatever where all they want to do is talk about singers, actresses, movies that they hate, that they don't like, and they want to put things down constantly. And that doesn't mean I'm against criticism or critiques or anything like that. But when there's this needless desire to tear everything and everyone down... I do have a problem with that. I don't tweet all day about everything that I hate. I just don't. I often keep those opinions to myself because I know that other people may really love them. Other people may really love a singer I don't like. They may really love a film that I don't like. And I try to respect that. But I did want to answer some of these questions 
and I wanted to answer them honestly and that may upset a few people I may mention films or filmmakers that you really love it's not personal I like certain things and other things I don't like and if I don't feel a spark and I don't feel a connection to it then I don't and who knows in a few years maybe I'll feel differently but this is what I feel right now so a lot of these questions some of them are a little bit on the negative side of things that I don't like but overall I'm trying to focus on things that I do like and that I do care about so what's the most overrated film first of all I'll say Gone with the Wind I don't care for Gone with the Wind <laughs> um, obviously the racial aspects of it we had to watch it in a film appreciation class that I took in high school and it was really painful to watch this film because it's very long I didn't like it it doesn't mean that I don't think it should be shown but I'm not a fan of it obviously I don't like Birth of a Nation you know by D.W. Griffith um, but I don't think anybody would say that they love that film obviously so it's not overrated but I think Gone with the Wind is a little overrated um the graduate I watched the graduate last year by Mike Nichols and I did not care for it I was really underwhelmed by that film and I'm not really sure why it is <laughs> such a, a big film personally and I'll say and this is probably really really controversial I'm gonna say one that is a big deal to a lot of people 2001 a space odyssey judge me all you won't I don't care I watched it I gave it a chance I watched it from beginning to end I really was not impressed I thought it was really sterile and cold and I really didn't get it yeah the ape scene I mean you can tell it's men in suits and and I, and I know it was like the 70s or maybe it was the 60s um it just yeah 2001 a space odyssey I know all of you are gonna hate me for that one I'll even say it vertigo by Alfred Hitchcock I would not say that one blows me away it's not my favorite Hitchcock I much prefer notorious or the birds or psycho personally I don't quite get vertigo the way other people do it just doesn't hit me it just doesn't do anything these are just films that don't do anything for me I watched them I'm not going to watch them again who knows maybe in the future we will see but so those are my really overrated films for me and I know many of you will be horrified <laughs> uh, but that's how I feel so question number two best underrated gem of a film I have a few I have about three one is Penny Serenade by George Stevens from 1941 I adore this film it has Cary Grant in it and Irene Dunn and they play this couple and they're struggling in their marriage and one night she goes through their record collection that they have and for each record that she puts on the player it takes her back in time to a moment from their marriage and um, they had struggles having children and they've gone through a lot of struggles and tribulations together and so it is this beautiful device narrative device I guess you could say that George Stevens uses of the records of her listening to these songs and them taking her back into the past and I just was so moved by this film and Cary Grant gives a really great raw intimate performance in this film I don't want to give anything away really I highly recommend that you watch it it should be on YouTube and it's just it it knocked me out I don't often feel that way about old Hollywood films um, I don't watch a ton of them but this one just there is a sentimentality there but it's incredibly beautiful and I loved how it really captured the way that music can be such an emotional component of our lives how we can listen to a song and it takes us right back to certain moments in our lives and so I would highly recommend that film to you One's, uh, one film is more recent it's called Tempestad 
by Tatiana Huezos, and it's from 2016. It's a documentary. It's a, a Mexican film. And I've been talking about this film for years, um, since 2016, because it knocked me out, and it still haunts me. It is about two women in Mexico. One woman was um, wrongfully convicted and imprisoned, and another woman, her daughter disappeared, and she doesn't know what happened to her daughter. And so these women, over the course of the documentary, they narrate their lives and they tell their stories. And then Huezos also shows them going through um, their daily lives. The woman who went to prison, we don't really see her, but we do see the mother whose daughter has disappeared. And so it's about loss. It's about trauma. It's about violence, especially in Mexico, violence against women. Um... It's about these women trying to cope with what's happened to them. And finally, a, a film that I just love to death, um, Big Night by Stanley Tucci and Campbell Scott. It came out in 1996. It stars Stanley Tucci and Tony Shalhoub as Italian brothers who moved from Italy to New York. I think it's set in the 1950s. It's got Isabella Rossellini, um, Minnie Driver, um, Mark Anthony is in it. It's this really great film about immigration, what it's like to move from one country to another, um, how hard it is to assimilate into a new society, a new culture. It's about trying to make it in America because their, their restaurant called The Paradise is struggling and they're they're not able to uh, realize the dream that they had of opening this restaurant. Um, it's about this relationship between two brothers. It's about food. Beautiful, delicious looking Italian food. It's just one of the best films. Like, I love watching it. It makes me happy. It's a gorgeous film. So, big night. Question number three. What film would you add to the Criterion Collection? I'm a big fan of the Criterion Collection. Um, I have criticisms of it. You know, I think there should be more women directors. Um, there's not nearly enough. But I am a big fan of Criterion, and I think they've done a lot to preserve art house cinema for those of us who care about it. I have one film in particular that I do think should be added to it, and I've been saying this, and I've been proselytizing about this film for years and years and years. That film is Birth, directed by Jonathan Glazer. It came out in 2004. It stars Nicole Kidman, who gives what I consider her best performance. Um, she plays a grieving woman who has lost her husband suddenly. Her husband dies when he's jogging. And um, she starts to believe that a little boy is the reincarnation of her husband and it's about her relationship with this little boy and what that relationship does to her psychologically and um it is it's got Lauren Bacall in it um and Nicole Kidman and it has haunted me since 2004 when it came out because I'm someone who struggles with a lot of grief and a lot of loss in my life and this film just I can't explain it it's one of those like films in your bones like in your marrow you know this film lives in me like it was so formative and so important to me and it still is I haven't watched it for years and years I want to do an episode about it, but I feel incapable of it because it means so much to me and it sort of lives in my mind. Alexander Desplat did the soundtrack for the film and it is one of the most stunning soundtracks ever. I still listen to it all the time because it allows me to sort of re-enter the film. This is, it feels like a European art house film, but it's American art house. And Glazer just, it just so impressed me. I think it's worthy of a Criterion release. I really do. So, Birth 
Um, that is just, that should absolutely be in the Criterion Collection. Question four, what film would you remove from the Criterion Collection? Well, I'm going to say all, every single one of Lars von Trier, or Trier, I don't know how it's pronounced. I don't care for him. I really don't. Um, I don't like the way he treats his actresses, the way he treated Bjork when it came to Dancer in the Dark. I just, I don't know. You can judge me. I don't care. You know, I know he did Dogme and, you know, all these, he's considered important, whatever. I don't like Lars von Trier. So I would take all his out of the Criterion Collection. Number five, a film you were surprised to love. I have a good one for this. I don't usually like westerns. I don't watch them. I'm not that interested in them. I remember in that film appreciation class from high school, we watched High Noon with Gary Cooper. That was pretty good. That was pretty good. But I would say a film I was really surprised to love was Johnny Guitar, and it's by Nicholas Ray from 1954. Joan Crawford in this film, it's like this Technicolor fever dream. It's about... A woman named Vienna, I think, played by Joan Crawford, and she owns the saloon in the desert, and there's like a railroad that wants to come through, and she's okay with it, but the townspeople are not. The townspeople basically hate this woman, and they she has this arch enemy, this other woman, I can't remember her name, and this woman wants to just destroy Joan Crawford's character. And there's like this amazing ending where they come, you know, one-on-one. -on -one. It is, it's one of the most amazingly written films with the most amazing lines that Joan Crawford gives. Joan Crawford is frightening in this film, but so incredibly ferocious. Um, it knocked me, it just knocked me for a loop watching this film. I could not believe I was watching a western and how much I loved it. It's almost like a feminist western, I think. And um, the Technicolor was just stunning. And her blue eyes and her red lips. And it's like, and this there was this blue sky in this film that was amazing. And so it's really about this community this town that is incredibly small-minded and is trying to destroy this woman and so um, I was really surprised how much I loved it question six a film that disappointed you recently um, I love the website Mubi M-U-B-I I, I love it I have found so many great films through it and you only have 30 days to watch each film. There's a new film every day, but you only have 30 days to watch it. And so one day they added a film called Housekeeping. And I think it was made, I think it was done in the 80s or something. And I thought, ooh, that looks interesting. Because I'll just peruse, I'll just peruse what they have available. Read descriptions and then think about what I want to watch. And I got intrigued by this film. I didn't watch it. I just read the description. I said, oh, I've always wanted to read the book Housekeeping by Marilyn Robinson. So what I said is I'm going to read the book and then I'll watch this film. The book changed my life. This book, you have to read Housekeeping by Marilyn Robinson. You have to. I loved it. Um, it's it's about so many things like I'm not even gonna go into it just look it up I don't have a ton of time <laughs> and so um, it's about these girls their mother commits suicide they go to live with their grandmother and then their aunt starts to take care of them and their aunt's very different she's sort of disheveled she's a misfit in a lot of ways so it's it's about that it's like that it's about women so I read the book oh my god the language Marilyn Robinson amazing writer I go to watch the film and I get like terrible TV movie okay I was so disappointed because this book is so rich and exquisite and mysterious and haunting I mean there this book is on another level it takes you to another place 
and I watch this movie and it's like movie of the week. I don't know if y'all remember those from like the 80s and 90s. I could not stand it. I didn't like it at all. So I was really disappointed. The, uh, the film just did not live up to the gravity of the novel. The, the trend, uh, I don't know, the transcendent beauty of this book and the film didn't even touch it, didn't even come close. So I was really disappointed in that. Is there any well-regarded director you just don't like no matter how hard you try? I don't know if he's well-regarded, but I would say David O. Russell. I'm not really into David O. Russell. Um, I just think he's really overrated. I don't understand why he gets all these Oscar nominations, personally. I will say I have a conflict and I struggle with uh, Jean-Luc Godard. I, I, I find his films really difficult. Some of them I love like two or three things I know about her or Alphaville. Um, I really like Alphaville. Um, what's another one? I don't know. But I have some, Viver Savi, love it. So I have films of his that I really love and then other films, I just don't get it. You know, I don't think I totally understand his politics and how political he was. So I tend to go more for Truffaut, you know, than I do Godard. Um, just because I think Truffaut is more enjoyable and more pleasurable for me to watch. I mean, maybe Godard, maybe that's the point of his work, is that it's supposed to be hard and difficult and challenging and different, but I struggle with him. I'm not saying he's overrated or anything, but I'm saying that I struggle with him and that I don't totally get it, you know what I mean? Um... So I would say those two. I don't want to say too many because I know there's a lot of people. I have a few that people would be really surprised. But um, I'd rather not. <laughs> I'd rather not go there. A film, uh, Question number eight. A filmmaker that deserves more attention. Well, obviously I'll say Larissa Shapitko, who I recently did an episode about. I talked about two of her films, Wings and The Ascent. She was a Soviet director. She was born in Ukraine and died in the 1970s. Um, I think she is one of the greatest directors that a lot of people have never heard of and don't know about. So I am a champion for Larissa Shapitko's work. Another person I would say, and this might surprise people, is a French actor. His name is Mathieu Amalric. He's in a lot of well-known films, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. He's in Munich by Steven Spielberg. Um, he's in a lot of films, but, and, but he actually directs films. And I have been really impressed with his work that I have seen. I've seen On Tour, which is about a troupe of uh, female burlesque dancers who are touring, uh, the, touring France. And that was such a wonderful film. The Blue Room, um, which is sort of like a mystery film. And a film called The Wimbledon Stage, or Le Stade de Wimbledon, which I did an episode about on the podcast, which is about this woman sort of searching for this writer who never wrote a book. Um, I think his work is eclectic. I think it's idiosyncratic. I think it's intellectual. I think it's humane and deeply empathetic towards his characters. And I just love the way he captures life in his films. So I'm a big Mathieu Amalric fan and I wish he got more attention as a director. I think he's really wonderful. Question 9. If you could go back in time and visit any film set, which would you visit? And is there any particular scene you'd want to see? Well, as many of you know, my favorite director of all time is Krzysztof Kieślowski. He was a Polish director. He did the Three Colors trilogy. He did Decalogue. And he did this film called The Double Life of Veronique. And that is the film set that I'd want to go back to. I would love to be there as he's doing this film because it's such a mysterious, beautiful film. And I would love to see the marionette scene. Absolutely. I'd love to be in the audience when they were doing the marionettes. Because that scene is just... 
it takes my breath away that marionette scene i love it so much and that is another soundtrack the score film score that um that i still listen to the double life of veronique such beautiful music and um so that's definitely the film set that i'd want i would love to see how he made the film and 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 things like that because that film just fascinates and and obsesses me Question 10, if you could have any job in film production, what would it be? I think I'd be really interested in the editing phase. It sounds to me like editing is when the film really comes together for a lot of directors. And a lot of directors say how they love editing. And so I would go with that for sure. I would love to see how the film, how you take all these scenes and then you put it together and you create the film. You know, I think that would be really fascinating. Question 11. How do you feel about watching films by directors you know were horrible people did horrible things? This is a really complicated question. It's a really timely question with the Me Too uh, campaign and with Time's Up where women are talking and speaking up about the sexual harassment and sexual violence that they've been going through and it's certainly it you know it started in Hollywood this conversation and a lot of allegations have come out about various directors like Brett Ratner various actors like Kevin Spacey so we or recently James Franco um, a lot of stuff has come out about him so we're having to face this question and think about it head-on um, some directors and some films we have to watch because of their importance to cinema history think about birth of a nation which i mentioned earlier by dw griffith this is a odious film birth of a nation um, it led to the rise of the clan of the kkk in the united states um, in the early 20th century it was directly related to the rise in the KKK but for many historians and um, you know cinema film studies people this is an important film because of different techniques um, that D.W. Griffith used so if you were in a class you may have to watch it or think of Gone with the Wind you know the racial politics of that are not too great as we know so some films some directors we really do have to watch if we want to understand the progression of cinema and the history of cinema but i think we should always couch these films or contextualize these films and offer critical analysis of them i don't think you should ever show birth of a nation without speaking about what this film actually did and what it contributed to and what it unleashed really you know we have to talk about it in a critical way for more modern directors I would say it's also more complicated I have instant I have trouble for instance watching David O Russell or watching Lars von Trier's films knowing how they treat their actresses how David O Russell treated Amy Adams for instance on American Hustle or how Lars von Trier treated Bjork for Dancer in the Dark I first of all just don't like their films on an aesthetic level you know I don't care for the way they look I don't care for the stories that they tell um, but I also don't like the way they treat their actresses now what they did to those actresses was it illegal you know is it illegal to be mean you know <laughs> and to push people farther than they want to go psychologically or emotionally I mean I guess not but I still don't care for it you know and I don't know if I want to support men like that and then we take it even farther when we talk about Woody Allen or Roman Polanski who have actually done things that would be considered crimes and Polanski was actually you know charged um, you know with rape and Woody Allen the allegations against him by his adopted daughter Dylan Farrow which I believe I, I believe Dylan Farrow so um for i do not watch their films i don't watch films by woody allen or roman polanski i think personally we each have to draw our own line and we have to decide when that line is crossed so i'm not saying you have to stop watching roman polanski or woody allen but i am saying that i'm not going to 
and I'm not going to support their work. Um, for some people, they can separate it. They can separate the art from the artist, and they can car they can compartmentalize that, um, or they simply just don't believe the allegations. You know that they don't, um, or they don't think it matters, or they think art is more important. I don't really want to put art above human lives, especially if human lives are being damaged by certain artists. So, and I'll go beyond the personal. You know, we all have a line that we won't cross and things that we won't support. But if there are valid, um, provable accusations against men and or artists or directors, or actors, they are shown to be abusive or predatory then I absolutely think the system itself should not support them and their behavior should not be tolerated that means with Woody Allen with what Dylan Farrow is saying I do not think anyone should fund his films and I do not think actors and actresses should star in those films and if they choose to be in his films then we as an audience we as people have every right to criticize them for it that's not censorship okay we have the right to criticize things we have the right to say to ask why are you working with this this director and several actors have had to answer to it lately whether it's Rebecca Hall or Timothy Chalamet or Mira Sorvino all of them have expressed regret at working with him and I'm glad I'm glad they've expressed that regret. I think it's important. So we do have a right to ask them, why are you doing this? And I'll say it, Matthew Amalric, he has worked with Roman Polanski. I don't know if he's worked with Woody Allen, but I know he worked with Polanski a few years ago. Does that diminish Matthew in my eyes? Yeah, a little bit. I do kind of lose respect for actors or for people who work with these directors, but it is what it is right I mean what am I gonna do about it but um yeah I, I think if, if there is evidence and it's shown that you are predatory and you are abusive and you are still living I don't think people should be supporting your films and funding your films and um <laughs> and promoting them I just really don't and um something has to be done with that so it's complicated are there plenty of like classic directors who we know were really bad people yeah you know I have my concerns about Alfred Hitchcock obviously um, I still watch his films though so we're all we're all guilty and complicit in some way with this but I'm a, I'm more stern about directors who are living I really think it's important to not support their work and to not let them keep making films I just, yeah, that's how I feel about it. What film character do you most relate to? Question 12. I have a few. I relate to Wanda in Barbara Loden's film by the same name. She is this very invis invisible, silenced, marginalized woman she's working class the way I am she's someone who doesn't fit into the world or fit into society and can't really find her place and is always struggling so I would definitely say Wanda <coughs> I would say Nicole Kidman's character in birth she's someone who's very haunted by the death of someone that she loved as I am the way I am with the death of my father um, he died when I was young, when I was only 16, and um, I'm very haunted by his death, and I'm someone that struggles with grief, so I would definitely say Nicole Kidman's character in Birth. Uh, Marion Cotillard's character in Two Days, One Night, um, she's very fragile. She's another per. she struggles with depression. She struggles with uh, being working class and, and financial pressure and just the pressures that capitalism puts on our lives and how for some of us that can be very difficult to navigate and to deal with. 
And I would say finally Jennifer Connelly's character in House of Sand and Fog. I did a um, episode about House of Sand and Fog and how she loses her house. I recently lost my house uh, with a lot of my possessions in it and stuff. And um, I can I can really relate to her struggle and how attached to her home she was and how it's very hard for her to let it go. And that's something that really resonates with me. With me. Question 13. A film that you never get sick of. Well, I really love romantic comedies. So, uh, if these particular films, if they're on TV, I will watch them. And that includes The Devil Wears Prada. I love that film. I love, I like films about fashion. <coughs> I just think The Devil Wears Prada. I like the music. I like Stanley Tucci and Anne Hathaway and Meryl Streep. It's just such a fun film, I think. But I think there's a deeper message there about how willing how much you're willing to sell your soul for fame or for success so i think there's sometimes a deeper message i love you've got mail i love the films of nora efron i really don't get sick of them i love something's gotta give um, i'm a big fan of nancy myers and her films i don't think she's been doing too good lately i didn't like the intern but i love something's gotta give i like it's complicated I like The Holiday. It's one of my favorite Christmas films. So I really love Nora Ephron. Miss her so much. Wish she was still here. Because romantic comedies just, they're not made anymore. They're not very good. And um, Nancy, but I think Nancy Myers is like, uh, like a master at them, really. Question 14. A comfort film guaranteed to lift the blues. Under the Tuscan Sun all the way. I love Under the Tuscan Sun. I'm a huge fan of Diane Lane and I just love that film. She goes to Tuscany, you know, she's in Italy. I love films about Italy in the summertime. Um, whether it's, you know, Call Me By Your Name or whatever. I just love Italy. I have sort of this romanticized view, I guess, especially of Tuscany. It just looks like a really beautiful region. And it's just, it's well written. It's well directed. It's its a beautiful film. It really takes you away. And Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, the original one from like the 1970s. I love that film. I love Gene Wilder. I'm a big fan of his. I was really sad when he passed away recently. Um, I just love Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. I grew up on it when I was a kid. And, um, so I think when I do rewatch it, it reminds me of my childhood. But I also, you just, <coughs> you root for Charlie. You know, he really is that quintessential underdog. And when you see the great things happen to him and you see him sort of triumph, it's, it's just nice. You know, it's a dark world sometimes and at times you want to see something good happen and um but it's strange too it's this very strange film um there's something sort of uh dark about it at the same time the gene wilder brought that sort of darkness to willy wonka and i think it makes it all the more interesting when you watch it as an adult what's the funniest film you've ever seen question 15 I love Billy Wilder's Some Like It Hot. I love Jack Lemmon. I'm a big fan of his. And I just think he's hilarious. I even love when he was much older and he did Grumpy Old Men. They did all the Grumpy Old Men movies. I watch those. I think they're hilarious. Um, I love Singing in the Rain. Not technically a comedy, a musical. But there's really funny moments. Like when the actress... Um, you know, she was a silent film star and all of a sudden she starts to talk and she has this very intense accent. It's really funny. I love Arthur, the original Arthur with Dudley Moore. That film cracks me up so much. Uh, when Dudley has his drunk moments and he just says the most hilarious things. I like Robin Williams. I'm a huge Robin Williams fan, so... I thought he was funny in just about everything he did. I recently did an episode on Dead Poets Society. There's some funny moments in that. 
there's some really funny moments in Mrs. Doubtfire, like when he's um he's doing the dinosaur rap and he's you know I, like that could be a show on its own. Him just doing those dinosaurs, I, I that cracks me up every time I see it. So yeah, that's a few. I mean, I, I love those films. Question 16. Any strong opinions on award season in general and this one in particular? Well, I used to love award shows when I was younger um, and before I was a cinephile. I really could enjoy them and I liked the fashion. I liked to see the red carpet. Um, however, as my taste in film has changed over the years, I see I just can't watch award shows they are very empty for me and very artificial and I feel like the real great work being done does not get recognized and then other more mediocre films do get recognized and that really bothers me you know I was really happy when Moonlight won I will say that because I loved that film and I thought it was beautiful and I thought it was necessary and that I I hope that it has opened the door to more people of color and women of color and women to get their voices heard um, and to be able to make films. I, th I just think it's shameful the way so few women directors get nominated and so few women directors get win, how people of color are often shut out you know the whole Oscars so white campaign I understand that award shows are important I would never argue that they're not important because they are a, a sort of a barometer uh, for what's happening in the country I think and um, but they but these institutions are so dominated by white straight men and obviously we need to disrupt that and we need to invade these institutions and these systems but it's going to take a while and the racial and gender inequality in films is still a huge huge problem and um i just don't think i don't think the right people win i can't say much on this award season because i haven't watched most of the films i'm all for call me by your name i think call me by your name should get every damn award from director to actor for timothy chalamet the best film I'm kind of surprised that the film isn't getting that kind of, it's not sweeping the award shows. That really surprises me. I just always feel like the films that win are never really that important, you know. Like 10 years later you think, God, why did that win? Why did Crash win that year when there were all these other better films? So um, I think they get it wrong most of the time personally and why and why does Jennifer Lawrence and Emma Stone have an Oscar you know what I mean like why did Brie Larson get an Oscar like they're so young that's what I'm saying is like they're in their early 20s most a lot of people didn't get Oscars till they were much much older there's this sense that you don't even have to earn them anymore you could just get them your first performance right I mean and I don't know if those performances really merit you know that kind of award so I'm just like why why does Casey Affleck have an Oscar you know I'm just shocked at the people that have Oscars now I'm like what like it used to mean something you know it used to or maybe I'm just you know delusional but it's like God oh, you used to have to earn it or you used to have to really put in a great performance and it's like now oh yeah we're gonna give it to Casey Affleck okay <laughs> Question 17. What film would you like to see remade? Enchanted April by Mike Newell. I feel like there is so much potential for a remake of Enchanted April. It's got all the things that I love. It's got a group of women in Italy, you know, finding themselves. You know, it's just this beautiful. I love the book by Elizabeth von Arnhem. I like Mike Newell's Enchanted April. I do but it was made like I think in the late 80s it's not what I would love to see is a remake with really gorgeous cinematography you know really capture Tuscany well, were they in Tuscany well they were somewhere in Italy and you could capture this beautiful Italian villa 
sort of like call me by your name a little bit like you could just capture the beauty and then the women would have beautiful fashion and it, it could just it could be this really sumptuous period piece the way say Cherie by Stephen Frears is which I love Cherie um with Michelle Pfeiffer and uh yeah I love that film it's just gorgeous to look at it's beautiful and I think Enchanted April the, Mike Newell's didn't have that for me it didn't it just didn't have those colors and that beauty and and I really feel like there's a great opportunity to remake it get like really great British actresses put them in beautiful gowns put them in Italy I mean this could just be such an escape right and it could just be beautiful but it could have something deeper too because it's really about these women you know connecting to each other too and um so it's just I think that would be a great remake someone make that happen <laughs> question 18 any books you'd like to see adapted for the screen thank you for asking I have many first of all the secret history by Donna Tartt I could see it now get some really great actors I think it's mainly men there might be a woman in it I haven't read the secret history in years but to me it always felt cinematic it's like I could always see it as a film and um, I just think it could be really interesting you know um, it's such an amazing book it, it's a haunting book I think and it grips you I mean it, it just you'll read it front to back without being able to stop but I think if you had some really great young actors and I think somebody could do something great with that I really do there's a short story by Shirley Jackson that I think could make a very interesting film it's called Louisa please come home and it's about this girl named Louisa who runs away from home she's around 19 or so when she leaves without telling her family she creates this new life in another town until a young man from her past sees her and he takes her back home but there's this huge catch because Shirley Jackson was a genius and she was brilliant Louisa tries to go back but her family no longer recognizes her it's been several years and they've had all these girls coming to them claiming to be Louisa because there was some kind of reward money for her to come back and it's just stunning because it makes you think my god what if you left home and then you wanted to return home but the people didn't recognize you so you can't go back home you can't go back to your family because they don't believe it's you it's almost like a nightmare scenario right so I just think that's amazing I think that would be a great maybe short film or feature film and finally another thing a lot of people don't know about this series but it's this series of four books and it's called the series itself is called sisters of the Quantock Hills it's written by Ruth Elwin Harris and I love it and each book here in America um, is by the title of each book is the sister's name so there's Francis's story there's Julia's story Sarah's story and Gwen's story and it's about these four sisters who lose their parents and they live sort of in this rural part of England in Britain and they lose their parents and they have to be taken in by um I don't know what they call it. it's like the rectory or the rector or something like that he's like a neighbor of theirs and it follows their lives through the first world war and then I think to the second world war and like Julia um, she volunteers to be a nurse in the VAD during the, the first world war and and um, the rector he has four sons three or four sons I think and there's Gabriel um, there's different ones there's Anthony so each girl sort of has a different relationship with these boys and um, some of them fall in love with each other some of them go to um, fight in the first world war and so it's really about their lives through the wars it's about loss it's about the relationship between these sisters 
each sister is artistic um, in some way. Sarah likes to write. Frances is this intense painter. Um, she goes to art school and so it's really about these women also bucking conventions, gender conventions back then because um, Francis is told, oh, you shouldn't paint because you're a woman. and So there's feminism there. There's history there. I could see it as a series on the BBC, really, or, or like one big movie. But I see it more as a mini-series for the BBC. And it's it would just be an amazing way to look at the First World War and the Second World War, to look at these women's lives as they grow up, as they fall in love, as they follow their passions, whether it be writing or literature, I mean writing or painting. Um, and it's really about lost innocence, lost innocence. It's about their life before the First World War and then their life after the First World War and how cataclysmic and life-changing it is. So. It's an amazing series. I, I reread it every few years. And it's just this set of four books by Ruth Elwin Harris. And it's just amazing. And finally, question 20. Any film you feel the need to defend against the critical mob? Um, I wouldn't say like a, a specific film in particular that I love and then every, that everybody hates. I will, though, defend made-for-TV movies from the 1990s, and I did an episode about it, but I will defend these movies forever, the ones that usually aired on the Lifetime Network, and I'm talking about the 90s ones, not the recent ones that are pretty terrible. I think they were really important in that they showed violence against women, and they often showed women fighting against that violence. And so you would see women trying to get justice. You would see women fighting back against. I mean, I've seen a few, um, like in one, these girls, their mother is murdered. And it's just heartbreaking. And then in another one, you know, often the, um, the stories were about women being beaten, you know, by men and trying to get the police to care. I know Nancy McKeon was in one where this guy, she was dating him or he was her husband and he was just beating the crap out of her and like the police officer did nothing about it and it was just about you know it was about that situation I can't remember what it was called and then um, there were some that were about rape and that were about the victim trying to get justice you know trying to um, get the man prosecuted or you know, Tiffany Amber Thiessen was in one called um, She Fought Alone, which I talked about on the podcast, where she was raped and then the school allowed kids to sort of attack her and call her names and the school just didn't do anything about it and so she held the school accountable. So I even seem to remember one about a girl, she was like this athlete, she was the blonde girl from Jurassic Park. And she had this coach. I don't know if she was in gymnastics or she was in some sport where she had a coach who was molesting her or raping her. And she was trying to deal with that. And I mean, just thinking of that, it makes me think of what's happening in USA Gymnastics with that Nasser guy where more than 150 girls have come forward, 150 girls and women who have come forward and talked about the abuse they suffered at his hands and they have called for USA Gymnastics and Michigan State University to also be held accountable for it. So I'm saying there are themes in some of these TV movies of the 90s that actually sort of resonate with our current moment. Um, they used, they, I think there was a movie about gymnastics. I want to say Amy Johnson was in it, but some of them were more about, um, eating disorders. There were a few, like I think one was about a ballet dancer and she had an eating disorder. She had anorexia or something like that. But I did feel like they addressed issues that women were going through, but especially when it came to domestic violence um, or molestation, which is really relevant now, you know, with what we're talking about with sexual violence against women. So, of course, these films were not always the best quality, and we obviously need more than films to change gender violence. It's not enough to just do a film about it. 
But I did feel it was important that that violence was made visible. That women could turn on the television and see stories that reflected what they were going through in their lives, whether it was an abusive relationship or an eating disorder or, you know, whatever. Um, so I thought that it's not enough. These films are not enough. They have to be attached to some kind of action, to some kind of change in the system and in our society. But sometimes change can start in those small places, you know. I also really love romantic comedies, and so I will always defend romantic comedies. I don't think any good ones are really coming out now, but I think there was a golden age really in the 90s and the early 2000s with Sleepless in Seattle and You've Got Mail and Under the Tuscan Sun and The Devil Wears Prada and, you know, Julie and Julia. I really love that with Amy Adams and Meryl Streep. So these films were often written and or directed by women, um, especially Nora Ephron and Nancy Myers. And um, I just think they were wonderful. I enjoy them. Maybe I'll talk about some romantic comedies eventually on the podcast. You know, I'm not just always watching serious art house film. Is that the majority of what I watch nowadays? Absolutely. But it's not all I watch. You know, I still watch romantic comedies, and I watch fun films, and I watch uh, period dramas, you know, things set in the past, and I really enjoy those, especially if they're made by the BBC. I tend to really love their um, their costume dramas, like Downton Abbey and stuff like that. So I love that stuff. I just don't talk about it as much on the podcast. I still I still try to focus on art house and world cinema. You know, that is sort of my main passion. But I love everything. I really do. I watch I watch anything and everything. I'm pretty I'm pretty open to things, I would say. And um yeah. Well, I hope those questions were interesting. I hope they gave you a sense of of um, you know, what I'm interested in, what I love, you know, it's you know, I just wanted to do something fun for this episode, and um, thanks again for supporting the podcast, for listening. Um, it's 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 a great feeling, you know, to have this fiftieth episode, and so it, it was nice to just celebrate it and talk about it for a little while. Thank you so much for listening. I'm gonna stop here. Until next time, keep watching great films. Bye for now.